This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. There are few figures more central to the history of the West than Martin Luther. Without him, there would have been no Reformation, or at least it would have looked very differently. The confessional Protestant churches, that is the Lutherans and the Reformed, are his children. Contrary to the identity that developed in the 19th century, largely for political reasons, among some American Reformed and Presbyterian types, there were not two parallel Protestant tracts, one emanating independently from Zurich and another from Wittenberg. That simply isn't true. There are not two competing Protestant principles, that is justification by faith alone and divine sovereignty. As often as they disagreed with each other, the 16th and 17th century Lutherans and Reformed did not describe their differences that way. The original Reformed theologians and churches in Europe and in the British Isles were unashamed of their profound debt to Martin Luther. Carl Truman did his doctoral work on Martin Luther and has taught Reformation history for two decades. So it's appropriate that he's on campus this week teaching a summer course on Martin Luther. He is visiting professor of historical theology here at Westminster Seminary, California, and his full-time job is as professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. So if you're looking for an undergraduate school for your kids, certainly you want to be looking at Grove City among the options. He is author of many excellent books, among which is Luther on the Christian Life, Cross, and Freedom. Hi, Carl. Welcome back to Office Hours. Great to be here, Scott. You must have a more recent book than that. I grabbed that because that's relevant to the course you're teaching. Well, actually, my most recent book, I guess, is relevant to the course I'm teaching, and that's the one I co-authored with Bob Kolb uh, between Wittenberg and Geneva, which was an attempt to demonstrate in an ironic fashion the similarities and the differences that exist between the Lutheran tradition and the Reformed tradition. I read that book in pre-publication form and yeah. highly recommend that. So Thank you very if much. If you want to see a serious, thoughtful, gracious discussion by two excellent representatives of the two confessional traditions actually discussing where they agree and disagree, where the traditions agree and disagree, then I recommend that volume. This is a thing that's been needed for a long time, so I'm glad you fellows did that. Again, tell us the title of that. Between Wittenberg and Geneva, right. Lutheran and Reform Theology in Conversation. Great zone. Uh, it's published by Baker. My Baker. All right, yeah. there you go. And good bookstores everywhere. So here we are. You're back on campus discussing Martin Luther with our students and lots of people from the community. And, uh, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, we understand why you were talking about Luther in 2017, but it's 2019. Move on. Yeah, well, there's always an anniversary, of course. It's actually the, the 500th anniversary of the Leipzig Disputation. Okay, well, there you go. There's your formal justification. <laughs> yeah. But you can't ever really move on from Luther, can we? I think if you want to understand Protestant theology, classic Orthodox Protestant theology, or indeed, if you want to understand the contemporary shape of Roman Catholic theology, Martin Luther is a figure with whom you have to grapple at some level, particularly for Protestants. I think he sets the terms of debate on a number of key issues for us. Principally, of course, justification. That's the one that typically comes to mind when we think of Luther, justification by grace through faith. But also debates about the scripture principle, uh, the perspicuity of scripture. And then 
on a more, I won't say negative sort of way, but in terms of things that divide Protestants, his approach to the Lord's Supper, which as a Reformed uh, theologian and as a Presbyterian theologian, you and I would disagree with, but I think would both acknowledge that the terms of debate and the way that debate played out in the 16th century and beyond profoundly shaped by the personal hang-ups, convictions, no matter how you want to sure. refer to them, of Martin Luther. And if we had to choose between, if we're thinking about Marburg in 1529, yeah. between Zwingli on the one hand and Luther on the other, as Calvin seems to have done for most of his life, we probably have more sympathy with Luther in some respects. Obviously, we agree with Zwingli in some cases in terms of his emphasis on the ascension of Jesus and all of that, but in terms of the notion of the supper as a supper— and being fed by Christ, Christ coming to us, Christ giving himself to us in the supper. The language of certainly the Belgic, for example, Article 35 in the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 75 and following, and I think in the Westminster Standards, resonates with Luther's concerns in important ways. Yeah, I would agree. I think that we would be in agreement with Zwingli on the Christological dimensions or underpinnings of the Lord's Supper. But in terms of what the Lord's Supper does, I think we're much closer to Luther. The idea that it is a gift of God to us, that it seals something, it seals the gospel on our hearts, that it is not simply a symbolic gesture that reminds us that yeah. Christ died and will come again, that there's something more vital and important going on there. Definitely with we'd be with Luther on that. I find uh, I'm working from memory here, but I don't think there's anything in the small catechism, Luther's small catechism, that I particularly object to yeah. uh, from a reform perspective when he deals with the Lord's Supper. And even in the Augsburg, depending on which edition, right? The Variata of 1540, uh, of course, which is not highly thought of in Lutheran quarters, <laughs> but but the Variata, the varied edition of 1540 that Melanchthon puts together, certainly the watering down of the yeah. very strict Lutheran position means that I think... Uh, a Reformed theologian, John Calvin, yeah. you know, can subscribe the Augsburg Confession. And when the Reformed gathered up their response, so the Lutherans published the Book of Concord in 1580. It's a large collection of documents. And they taunted the Reformed and said, well, look, all our confessions are under one cover. And look at you people have all these documents everywhere. And so we said, fine, we'll do that. And Beza and uh, others gathered together a bunch of Reformed confessions. And they published it as a harmony of confessions. And one of the documents in there that often, I think, surprises people, surprised me when I first looked at it, is the Augsburg Confession. Interesting. Interesting. That, which yeah. you wouldn't expect. So the Reformed have always felt probably more kinship with Luther and to some degree the Lutherans, probably a lesser degree, mm. than they have ever felt with us, right? They regard us as sacramentarians, which means uh, what, Carl? Tell us. Well, sacramentarians, intuitively, it sounds as if it should be those who place a high value on the sacraments. In actual fact, it's used to refer to those who regard it as placing a very low value on the sacraments, seeing them as mere symbols. An oath, our pledge. Yes, a pledge of more horizontal significance of binding us together with our brothers and sisters in Christ than any divine action of God in Christ coming to us. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. While I have you, let me ask you about Zwingli. I didn't prep you for this, but Fire away. I'm sure you can do this. I'm curious how you read Zwingli, because you and I both know Peter Stevens, yeah. who wrote a very influential book on Zwingli. Yeah, and sadly died uh, earlier this year, Peter. I did not know uh, that. No, he died on, on April the 
first of all oh. dates while in an operating theatre, I believe. Oh. Uh, so sorry that, that Peter, great Zwingli scholar, is no longer with us. Yeah. Really gracious, kind, gentle fellow. I didn't know him very well, but spent a, a nice train trip with him yeah. one time, <laughs> talking Zwingli and lots yeah. of things. And so that book has influenced, I think, at least in the English-speaking world, the conversation about Zwingli. But one place where I think I disagree with him is this notion that Zwingli matured. Because if you look, at least as I look at the very latest things that he wrote, when he's trying to articulate his view of the supper, it seems to me that he never really gets beyond uh, the notion of our pledging. And the most you really get in Zwingli is a kind of intense psychological experience. I don't really get a sense of being fed yeah. by Christ. Yeah, I think, uh, and part of the reason for that is, of course, that controversy is never a great context for developing sure. uh, a balanced theology. And Marburg... 1529, Zwingli's dead in 1531, that almost all of his Eucharistic theology is developed in the white heat of, yeah, exactly. of battle with Luther, which means really the place is open for the kind of excessive reaction to which you're pointing. Yeah, when I, people are calling you names and telling you that you're a fanatic yeah. and a nut and yeah. uh, speaking disparagingly, even after you've promised not to insult each other, and then you, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that has a bad effect on your ability to work out a constructive view. It does. And, you know, I hesitate to say this because Peter, of course, is my doctoral supervisor and was always hammering home to me the need to be objective in the way I treated my yeah. subjects. But Peter himself was a very highly sacramental Methodist. You know, had he been an Anglican, he'd have been an Anglo-Catholic. <laughs> and I do wonder if, you know, at the end of the day, he was just trying Trying to salvage a little bit of Zwingli for <laughs> Well, but. that's interesting. I, I did not know that context, so I've often wondered, you know, what it. I, I knew he had a Methodist connection, but I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't. He know was that a big about fan it. of John Wesley. And I don't know Wesley well enough, but Peter would argue that Wesley was a highly hmm. sacramental Methodist. Okay. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about while you're here is this aspect of Luther's theology with which I think a lot of Reformed people are not sufficiently familiar, and that is this notion of the theology of the cross as distinct from the theology of glory. And these are, I think, really important categories that underlie a lot of Reformed theology that don't always get explicitly articulated. But because we don't know Luther as well as we should and we don't know these categories, I think we miss out on some things. Can you walk us through that distinction? What does he mean by that language and how did he come to that? Yeah, the language emerges in 1518. At, it's called the Heidelberg Disputation, which was a, a meeting of the Augustinian order in April of 1518, a few months after the indulgence controversy had exploded. And Luther prepared a set of theses for a set of propositions for discussion at this meeting of the Augustinian order. Really not part of the direct controversy concerning indulgences, more of a part of his general theological development and progress at that time. And the theological part of the dispute consists of a, a number of propositions. First of all, he sets forth the law-gospel antithesis, this great contrast between uh, the law, the commands of God, and the gospel, the promises of what God has done in Christ. Then he talks or sets forward a number of propositions relative to the bondage of the will, another significant Lutheran theme. And then at the end of this, he comes up with a, a series of theses, theses 19 to 21, 
where he makes this distinction between what he calls a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. And often we, we talk about the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Luther's more typical way of referring to it is to talk about it as the theologian of glory and theologian of the cross, because he's specifically not articulating uh, an abstract method or a principle here. He's talking about how people think theologically. And the distinction, to sort of boil it down, is that the theologian of glory essentially looks at the way the world operates, takes concepts from the world around, and extrapolates back to God, and therefore assumes that God, to put it very crudely, that God thinks like a giant, perfect human being. An obvious uh, example of that would be, you know, if I want you to like me, Scott, I'm going to do nice things to you, because I understand that for you to love me, I have to make myself lovable to you. Luther would say, you know, theologian of glory applies that idea to God. And for me to make myself lovable to God, I have to do good works. I have to do nice things that God will approve of. In contrast to that, Luther sets forth the theologian of the cross. who says uh, the theologian of the cross talks about God and thinks about God on the basis of how God has revealed himself through suffering and the cross. And the cross at Calvary becomes a theological principle for Luther. If we wanted to look for New Testament precedent for this, we might think of how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 1, or we might think of the response of the second thief on the cross in the Gospel of Luke, where Paul essentially sets forth the idea that the outward trappings of the cross, the human frameworks of expectation that we bring to bear on the cross can make no sense of it at all. They tell us that this is a weak man, this is a a sinner, this is a man deserving to die. Whereas the eyes of faith, the one who goes and receives the revelation as the revelation of God, the eyes of faith see in the death of Christ the inauguration of the kingdom, the triumph over death. The first thief might say, you know, Jesus, if you're king of the Jews, come down from the cross. The second thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's the difference between the theologian of glory, the one who thinks about God in human terms, and the theologian of the cross, the one who thinks about God in the terms in which God has revealed himself to be in the incarnation, specifically in suffering and death on the cross. And the twist for Luther, of course, is that all human beings, we all in some ways embody the two, all Christians, we're constantly tempted to think about God in human terms, to be theologians of glory. And that's why the law is important, because the law constantly says to us, look, if you want to approach God on your terms, you're going to die. And the gospel The gospel of the crucified God points us to the fact that God in Christ has done it all for us, and all we need to do is believe. Embedded in the theology of glory is um, rationalism, the the preeminence of the human intellect, and moralism. As you would say, I need to make myself lovable, this notion that I need to prepare myself. And of course, these things are deeply embedded in the theology in one way or another that he had learned or that others had learned leading up to the Reformation. So he's rebelling against all of that. Here I want to ask you, don't you think implied in this too is a kind of triumphalism that uh, Luther is rebelling against, this notion of going from glory to glory or conquest to conquest? Because it's interesting that he chose theology of glory as against um, theology of the cross. So 
you know, one of the groups with whom he is having a, a sort of heated disagreement are the Anabaptists who have a highly realized eschatology. They want more of heaven now in this world than he thinks really you can have. Yes, and that's a very perceptive point, Scott. And if we move forward in Luther's thinking to <laughs> – do I get paid extra for that? Do I get paid for that? Uh, if we move forward in Luther's thinking to his major work of the late 1530s on the councils and the church, which really his critique of the role of tradition in the church and in Christian thinking, he advocates seven marks of the church – most Reformed people, we think in terms of two or three marks, you know, the word, the sacraments, discipline or purity of worship, or maybe a third one. Uh, Luther has seven, and the seventh mark is the cross, and it ties back to Heidelberg in 1518. Luther there, it wants to set forth the idea, again, I think, building on Pauline insights from First and Second Corinthians, that suffering and an outward contradiction is a hallmark of the church. Now, I think what Luther is not saying is that if your church is not being outwardly contradicted and suffering, it's necessarily unfaithful, yeah. but that one should expect suffering and outward contradiction. That certainly doesn't falsify your church. Yeah. Uh, that the horizon of expectation for the church and for the believer is ultimately, outwardly speaking, a rather pessimistic one. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. If you are a Protestant in um, in of course, in 1518, Luther is very much in progress. And as you were saying yesterday in class, you know, it's right in this period that he himself has a pretty strong eschatological yeah. expectation about what is to come. And as you say, by 1527, he's having to reconsider and think more long terms. But he's established some themes here that are going to stay with him and I think in ways reverberate. So you know, for Protestants in the first quarter of the 16th century, first half of the 16th century, and maybe even beyond, um, you know, they were oftentimes a marginal group. Uh, there's been work done in modern Reformation studies about the failure of the Reformation, which is interesting, maybe overstated, but there are instances where the Reformation simply didn't take hold, where the people said, no, we like the status quo. We like our folk religion. We like cooperating with grace. We like preparationism. We like a Latin mass that we don't understand. And we like magic and ritual. We don't want to hear somebody stand up there and talk to us for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 minutes. So there were places where the Reformation didn't flourish. And, you know, a Romanist, you know, once the those two sides are clearly delineated, could point to the cathedral and say, look, right, we have these institutions. Uh, we have theology faculties. We have cathedrals. We have glory. We have power. We have a pope. And what do you have? Some minister cowering, you know, in a corner somewhere hoping he doesn't get martyred. And there was truth in that. Yeah, yeah. And so, in a sense, 
when we grasp these categories, theology of glory, theology of the cross, we have a way of thinking about that, that uh, power and influence and success, as seductive as they are, are not indicators of gospel fidelity, truth, or even the presence of the church. Not at all. I think you're absolutely correct there, Scott. And uh, I think that's a lesson that, you know, the church in the West particularly the church in America, because the church in Europe has been yeah. weak for a long, long time. Yeah, they know a little bit about, yeah, about suffering. We've had a few generations to get used to being <laughs> marginal. Yeah. Uh, I think that the rapidity of, I won't say the secularization, but the de-Christianization of America is meaning that a lot of Christians are playing catch-up on the, yeah. the theology of the cross idea because— I mean, even last week I was reading something on the internet, so it must be true. So, sort of, uh, <laughs> saying you know those who who are those who are using the language of, of pilgrim and sojourner, yeah. you know, they're capitulating, they're surrendering. And I said, well, first of all, that language is used in the New Testament. Testament yeah. Yeah. Peter, Philippians three twenty yeah, is still uh, in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. P- exactly. Peter wrote two epistles about being a sojourner and yeah. a pilgrim. So it, there's that, but there's also the you know Christ's own life was one of. Certainly in its latter phase. Foxes have holes. holes Birds have nests and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But evidently he didn't get the memo. And the church is the body of Christ. Does that not mean that there should be an analogy between the experience of Christ and the experience of the church? Paul says to the Colossians that the church is filling up the sufferings of Christ. In fact, a careful, close, fair reading of the New Testament sees precious little promise of this worldly glory, triumph, and a lot more teaching and preparation for this is what you do when they arrest you. This is how you should respond when they threaten to cut your head off. We're to take up our cross, to paraphrase William Jennings Bryan— that great Nebraskan, right? We don't That's say, like being the tallest uh, building in Topeka, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the state capital of Topeka is very nice, I'll have you know. To take up one's cross is to take up a public symbol of humiliation and death, right? So that's not glory. That's cross. So American Christianity is beset with or by a theology of glory. Turn on Christian television and what do you see, right? Perfectly quaffed people, pretty people with apparently large congregations announcing six steps to happiness, wealth, prosperity, and change the channel. And there's a person telling us how we can regain our cultural authority and influence in America, turn the channel. This is how we can take back America for Jesus. It goes on and on. And uh, even in our own circles, we have large entities, organizations, multiples of them, that are apparently uh, successful and influential, some of them denominations, some of them not denominations. And uh, in all of that, there is this message that true Christianity is popular and successful. And here are six steps so that you can be popular and successful as a Christian. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. And that goes to some of what we're now seeing surrounding debates about homosexuality, for Mm. example, where I get very suspicious when I'm constantly being told that the church is the problem, not the solution. Not that the church hasn't sinned and made terrible mistakes, but there's an industry out there that seems to think that if we can present the church in as negative a light as possible, perversely, the church will regain its kind of 
worldly cultural influence. And again, as you pointed out, I think that runs counter to the expectation, certainly of Paul. Self-flagellation as a marketing move. Yeah, self-hating Christianity is attractive Christianity, apparently. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's, again, this isn't something of which we see a great deal in the New Testament. Because near as I can tell, and again, I'm willing to be corrected, I just don't see anybody, any of the apostles, laying out a strategy for cultural influence in the New Testament. Well, that's the staggering thing about the New Testament in that the secular powers, to use it, it's a little bit of an anachronistic term, I suppose, but you think about the civil government and the civil culture of the late first and then on into the second century, far more overtly hostile to Christianity in many ways than the one we have today. Not that there is constant imperial persecution of Christians all the time in all places. We know that's not the case. But what that culture stands for is deeply antithetical to the claims of Christianity. And yet, Paul and the New Testament apostles seem to spend zero verses <laughs> on on challenging the powers that be, quite a lot on talking to the church about getting its house in order, yeah. but not a lot of time, A, apologizing to the wider culture about the church, or B, attempting to influence voting patterns within the late Roman Empire. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, and you wrote a book about that, or two, right? One did of, I? Yes. <laughs> I did, you're right, you Republic Rats. Republic Rats. Uh, for a second, I was thinking, when did I write about that? But you're correct. It was some other chap using my name. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that's another fine book yeah. that uh, the listener will want to get hold of and read. As I always say, read Truman. So this notion of being influential, being successful, being appreciated, being part of the power structure in America is deeply ingrained in American Christians. And we're seeing sort of the death throes of that and the struggle that people are having turning loose of it in a sense. I mean, I would want to add one qualification and yeah. say, I have no problem with Christians holding high office. Oh, sure. You know, and their decisions being informed by their Christian. Absolutely. Ben Sass is yeah, a, great a great example. example yeah. We certainly want Christians to be involved in public life, but the question of whether the church, yeah, the church should church. be running public life, yeah. that's the big one. That's or, the big one. Or this notion of being influential, uh, being powerful, yeah. right? Uh, because, it, you know, 100 years ago, we were, yeah. right? Uh, Protestant Christians held most of the positions of influence and power in this country, whether they were conservative or not is another matter, or confessional or faithful or not is another matter, but the sort of Protestant hegemony certainly existed at the turn of the 20th century. And as we've now moved into the 21st century, that hegemony is long yeah, gone. There's yeah. not a single Protestant sitting on the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Which is a remarkable thing. And as you say, you know, we can look at people like Ben Sass, but he's interesting because he's somewhat unique. Oh, right? yeah. As yeah. late as the 1970s, Mark Hatfield was a fairly faithful evangelical Christian and a Democrat. Yeah. And, you know, well known for being both. But today, you know, the notion that there are outspoken, faithful evangelicals in either party is somewhat unknown. Yeah. And I would broaden the cultural influence thing, though, beyond politics. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that— Educational institutions. Education, but also just pop culture. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, it was on Super Bowl night or something. Well, you know, you know every Super Bowl night, guess where I am? You're a little I'm, busy. I'm in church, you know. <laughs> but the day after, I was seeing people were sending me pictures of various— 
Christian famous celebrities yes. hanging out with genuinely famous yes, celebrities yes. at the sort of ball game. I'm thinking this is an affirmation. This is, this, is a, this is a search for affirmation. See, look, we're not entirely irrelevant because our cultural star is hanging out with we hang out with a rap star or something with like the really that. big star. Yeah. So we're still kind of connected. There are, yeah, it's. I think it's the celebrity culture grips. It's not just the political culture. It's the culture of celebrity influence that is a, a danger to us as well. So Luther really has something to say to us with respect to the theology of the cross. To embrace the cross is to embrace, to the degree necessary, a marginalization, fidelity over popularity, scripture over the autonomy of human reason, the gospel over against sort of self-righteousness. Yeah, yeah, I think very much so. Whether Luther, of course, himself was entirely consistent in his application oh, yeah, to his exactly. life. But the basic principles, I think, are very, very important. It gives us categories. So, And for most Christians, that is what life is like. Very few Christians have opportunities to be big shots yeah. or to be big celebrities or big Christian celebrities. For most Christians, I think, it's important to grasp the theology of the cross because that is how life is experienced if by you're most a, people. If you're a Chinese Christian, you're living the theology of the oh, cross. Oh, gosh, I mean, yes. I mean, yeah. what did, the, for example, the, the second century apologists say to the culture? Because they did speak to the culture. And what they principally said, at least, and you can disagree with me, but what I read them to say is, listen, we're no threat to you. Yeah. Please don't kill us. Yeah. If we break the law, you know, if some of our people are breaking the law, first of all, show us. And if you can show us, we will punish them more harshly than you do. I mean, a justed martyr actually said that. Well, I've often wondered what exactly did he have in mind for church discipline? Because <laughs> I, yeah. I know what oh, the Romans gosh. would have done to yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. And you get, you get the same thought, uh, I think, from uh, basically from Calvin's prefatory letter to Francis in the yes. Institutes, where he's essentially saying, you know, tolerate us Protestants. You yeah. know, we will be good French citizens, we will be good citizens of the realm. We're not seeking the overthrow of the realm. Now, that's hard today because some of the terms of civic fidelity are ones that are a little bit like you know, the times in the Roman Empire where you've got to sacrifice to Caesar. There are yes. points at which a Christian can say, I want to be a good citizen, but I cannot cross this line. And I think the sexual mores and codes that are being hammered down from above on us. Those are lines we cannot cross as Christians. There are going to come points where we have to say, I want to be a good citizen. I want to be a good employee, but I cannot cross this line sure. because I answer to a higher authority. And you see but, that in the bakery cases and those kinds of things. Yeah. You, you, that's coming. The civil rights yeah. commissions imposing fines on yeah. people. And that, of course, is where the theology of the cross becomes critically important because it's at that point you're able to say, well, yes, but even this weakness that I'm now experiencing has been overcome for my strength in God's action in Christ on the cross. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.